Hey church, it's so good to be with you today. Thanks so much for carving out part of your week. Um, we're excited that you're a part of the Hill City family today. We're continuing our series, Seven Letters, where we're talking about the book of Revelation and really kind of this beginning part where John, the author of the book of Revelation, is writing letters to specific churches uh, kind of in the lower Asia area, uh, specifically about things that Jesus is revealing to him. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I get to this book, uh, it can lead to a ton of questions and confusion. What do you do with all this? What do you do with this imagery? What do you do with the dragon? How do you make sense of all this? And I was reading up on that. I, I came across one theologian and he said, if he were on his own desert island and he could only pick one book of the Bible to be with him, he said he would put, pick the book of Revelation. And I, at first I'm like, well, that's crazy. Pick like Romans or Ephesians or Galatians. Pick something you understand. But his whole idea was that he would take Revelation because of the hope that it instilled. And so before we get into these letters, specifically for these churches, we saw last week, and we're going to go into it this week, the context, the setting up what these letters are all about. So we're going to be reading from Revelation 1, starting in verse 9 and going to verse 20. And it says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen that there are those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to your word with humble hearts and a desire to see you and a desire to grow in you. And we pray that you would speak to us today. Let our hearts be open, our ears be open for the words that you have for us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. Now, I know there's a lot of individuals who would say that their wedding day is the happiest day of their life. Now, context, I absolutely love my wife. We have an amazing relationship. We're best friends. Uh, we love spending time with each other. But I'm not one who would say that the wedding day was the best day of my life. I understand the sentiment, but people don't tell you the kind of stress that the wedding day brings. 
the amount of logistics. I mean, you think you have all these people and you almost feel like you gotta have it all there for them and you gotta kind of entertain them and they've gotta be happy. You have to have the right food, the right music, the right sounds, the right comfort, the right chairs, where's the restrooms, all of that different stuff. So for Caitlin and I, uh, the day, the wedding day, the couple days before and the wedding day was just a whole slew trying to figure out logistics. It was high stress, high emotion, and we were just trying to get this thing all squared away. I know Caitlin, the night before the wedding, was up all night long working on some art project that was gonna display on some random wall at our reception. And then we get to the day of, and I kind of look around at all my groomsmen, and I realize that one of my groomsmen is just missing. He's just not there. He winds up showing up way later on, way later than he was supposed to. And as he's showing up and as he's driving up, his car kind of stalls out and he gets stuck on a tree. Now this, this is one thing if it's just kind of off to the side, but the place that his car got stuck was actually right behind where Caitlin and I were supposed to be standing for the ceremony which would have meant every single picture of our moment getting married would have had this sedan sitting in the back of it. So because of that, there's probably 10 people from this bridal party who are all, all outside trying to move this car, trying to finagle it. People are sweating, they're in suits, they're in dresses. Everything's getting all dirty and all messed up all to get this car out of the way. On top of that, several of my groomsmen didn't have the right tie, the right suspenders, the right belts, wrong colors. And then they also don't tell you uh, that it's a long day and that you're gonna be waiting a long time. So you get hungry. So at one point I walk in the kitchen and nearly everybody in the bridal party is eating some bread. And I look down and it's the same bread we're supposed to be using for our communion. Now the ceremony happens and it's beautiful and Caitlin looks amazing and we say our I do's and we get married and we get to the end of the aisle and Caitlin just starts bawling. Now, as the husband there, my first reaction is, oh, is she upset that we just got married? But really it was just all the emotion of the day. It was so much to overcome to get to that point. And the funny part is that people come up to you for the rest of the night and they say, man, what an amazing ceremony. We loved it. It was beautiful. Never seen anything like it. It was, it was so great. You guys look so happy. And the whole time I'm thinking, you have no idea. You have no idea what the day looked like, how stressful it was. And the reality for those people is they only have a certain perspective. Their only perspective is the ceremony. And because they only saw the ceremony, they don't have a whole picture of what the day looked like. So they have no idea all that took place. What we have to realize is that the thing that we see in front of us often forms our perspective or our reality. And the key thing we have to realize about the book of Revelation is that all this stuff is going on in the world, but it is only a limited view which means it's only a limited perspective. So the reason that Jesus is revealing himself in all these different things to John is to give a grander story of what's going on. Because when they have a grander story of what's going on, they're going to have a shift in their perspective. Think about what your reality is shaped of today. 
24-7 news cycle, all these different things that we see in the news. Social media, people doing things for likes and for views. Pop culture that's saying that certain things are now norms. Even our emotions and our feelings, if we kind of, they kind of can be led astray and that can start to shape our reality. And for many of us, our reality is so limited. And what we have to realize is that the things that Jesus wants to reveal to us give, her, give us a grander perspective on all that's taking place in the world. The way that we view Jesus, the way that we view the gospel, the way that we view the biblical text ought to shape our reality. Because what you and I are seeing right now in our world and our experience is not always what it seems or it's not the full story. So we get into this text and this is kind of the first layer that's peeled back on the revelation. Pastor Charlie said this last week that it's not revelations, but a singular revelation. And so this is the first layer that's peeled back. So we have to get this right. If we don't, then the rest of what we read is going to be a little bit skewed. I think of it this way. Have you ever been buttoning your shirt and you got to the bottom and you thought, is one side of my shirt just longer than the other side? Or did I do something wrong along the way? If you're like me, I mess up my buttons constantly. Well, how do you fix that? You have to get the top button on correctly first, and then the rest of the buttons fall into place. It's the same thing with this part of the revelation. If we don't see this part first and primarily, the rest of what we read is not going to make sense or the rest of what we read is going to be skewed. This becomes the filter of the entire rest of the revelation. So John is on this island of Patmos, and as he's seeking God, and we could stop right there, as he's seeking God, he hears a voice. I love that he's seeking God while he's on this island. I was thinking about that, and I feel like sometimes you and I find ourselves on figurative islands where we are just feel like we're in this prison sentence. And our reaction there says a lot about how we view God. Do we seek God when we're in those moments or do, is that when we just try to pull up our bootstraps and do it on our own? I think sometimes God will put us in situations so that we learn what it means to seek his face. And so John knowing what he knows about the churches and knowing that he's on this island is seeking the face of God. And he hears a clear voice behind him. Now, this is not a voice that's in his head. It's a voice that's exterior. We know that because John actually turns around. So this is not just an internal experience. This is a kind of full theophany. This is a full theological experience. And it says he hears a voice like a trumpet. Now, I find this so interesting because he's from here on, and we're going to see this throughout the text, he's going to use a ton of imagery and pictures and symbols that all display unique things about the revelation. There's really kind of two reasons for this. One is kind of the cryptic voice that John wants to use. Remember, any letter that's going to come off the island is going to be read by the guards. So if it just says Rome is going to have a downfall, well, the guards are not going to send that out. Uh, so there's a cryptic voice that he uses. But also the second reason he used symbolisms is because of uh, the imagination and the pictures that it portrays. 
Jesus is not just concerned with forming your intellect or your reason or your knowledge. He's also concerned with forming your imagination because out of your imagination is where your feelings and emotions come from. For many of us, whether we like to admit it or not, our imagination becomes the thing that we hold on to. It becomes the ideal. It becomes the thing that's constantly in our head. So he's not just concerned with reason and logic and knowledge. He's concerned with forming our imagination. This also comes at a time when Rome is using an intense amount of symbols everywhere. I mean, think about the roads where these churches are located. They're going to be uh, kind of occupied by Rome. And so these are Roman roads everywhere. It's Roman architecture. There's Roman festivals. There's uh, Roman parties. All of this is kind of screaming at these churches saying Rome is in charge. So we could read this text and John could have said, well, Rome's not in charge. But instead what he does is he gives pictures that are different. Another way to say this is he gives an alternate version of reality. One theologian, Richard Balcom, says this, All these things provided visual impressions of Roman imperial power and the splendor of pagan religion. In this context, Revelation provides a set of Christian prophetic, catch this, counter images, which impress on its readers a different version of the world, how it looks from heaven. In other words, Jesus is trying to show and John is trying to show these churches an alternative reality, counter images, so that they have something to hold on to. So he could say that the trumpet, or he could say that the voice was loud, but instead he says that his voice was like a trumpet, which kind of insinuates power, authority, but there's also a beauty and a melody he doesn't say this voice is like a drum or this voice is like a clanging cymbal. He says this voice is like a trumpet, which would get his attention, but it's also not just a crash. It has beauty and melody to it. And this voice says to him that he is to write what he sees and send it to the seven churches. He then names the seven churches. Then he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, verse 20 will tell us that those seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So again, imagery, he's seeing seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches that he is pastoring over. Now, you're going to notice the number seven over and over again in the text. 52 times throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven is used. It has symbolic meaning, and it's this idea of completion or wholeness. So when John is seeing seven golden lampstands or seven churches, he's not just seeing seven individual churches. That's, that's one part of his perspective. But if he's seeing seven, that means he's seeing the whole church. The, we would say the big C church, not just a church or some church that he knows personally, but the church as a whole. And when he sees them, he also sees all that's going on with them. Now imagine what it would have been like to be in one of these churches at the time. Pastor Charlie alluded to this last week. This is a time where it was not uh, culturally sensible to be a Christian. It's believed 40,000 Christians died during that time because they were following the way of Jesus. Some of their leaders of these churches, Peter and James, have already died. They clearly could have killed John, but uh, Rome was actually fearful that a martyr would uh, just increase the movement all the more. So instead, they send him to 
an island. So this would have been a time of immense confusion. What am I supposed to do? How do I be a citizen of the kingdom of God and of this Roman imperialism? How, what, how am I supposed to go about my day? What if my business starts getting affected? How am I supposed to put food on my table? This is a time of confusion. It's also a time of discouragement. Didn't Jesus say that the gates of hell would not stand against the church? And yet it feels like we're losing. It feels like Rome is winning here. It feels like the church is, isn't doing the things that we thought it was going to do. That would have led to an immense amount of fear. What if I'm next? What if I lose my life? What if someone I love loses their life? Is it worth it? On top of that, there's a pressure to conform to the Roman imperialism. This is, they're feeling this on every side. If they're going to be citizens in this world, they're feeling the pressure to conform to what Rome is telling them to do. And on top of that, they're dealing with their own heresy and their own immorality in the church. Remember, they don't have a Bible the way you and I know it at this time. They're just trying to go based off what they think the words of Jesus are. So if you're in those shoes and you know, you see and experience all that the church is going through, what would you say? What would your encouragement be? Would you give the church a strategy? Would you give them a, tell them to uh, kind of have a task force? Would you tell them to increase church programs or increase church budget? Surely programs and budget will fix this. Would you tell the Christians, well, you got to kind of infiltrate and get into political power. Would you tell them to, would you work to try to make Christian the national religion? Would you tell them to overthrow the government? Would you tell them to start a resistance movement? Jesus doesn't tell them to do any of those things. Instead, what he does is he reveals himself. What John sees is not a strategy, but a person. He sees hope embodied. See, Jesus' methodology for instilling hope is sending himself. He realizes that hope can't come from work. It can't come from a certain relationship. It doesn't come from a certain strategy. It doesn't come from a political figure or a political party. Hope is only in Jesus Christ. John is looking at Jesus as the primary source of hope. And he knows any other source of hope will ultimately fail. Jesus can be the only true source of hope. Now notice here, he actually doesn't call him Jesus. He uses the language like a son of man. Now remember, John considers himself the one that Jesus loves. So he's close with Jesus, but he doesn't call him Jesus. He uses the language like the son of man. This would have come directly from the uh, prophecy in the book of Daniel chapter 7, where it says this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, same language. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the peoples, nations, and language, languages should serve them. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I want you to hear this. This is a quote from Daryl Johnson. He says this, In light of this vision, the phrase, one like a son of man, refers to the central figure in history. To the one to whom all the kingdoms of the world are given, to the one to whom all peoples of every age owe allegiance. 
One, like a son of man, refers to the pre-existent heavenly being who comes to establish the kingdom that cannot be destroyed. So what is all this saying? John could have just called him Jesus. But instead, this figure that he's seeing as Jesus is the central figure in history that's been prophesied for hundreds and thousands of years. In other words, this is not just Jesus, the Jewish rabbi uh, who lived, you know, 30 years earlier. This is the central figure in all of history. This is the most important being that's ever existed. And if that's true, then every world power and world ruler pales in comparison. He sees this, that the Son of Man is in the midst of the lampstands. Now, another translation would say in the middle of the lampstands. So again, what do the lampstands represent? The churches. So now this central figure of history, Jesus, is in the middle of his churches. He's not above as some ethereal being that the churches can't get to. He's not beneath, unable to impact the churches. He's not the on the outside looking in. He's in the midst or the middle of the churches. Which means what? That he's present. That he sees his people. That he knows his people. And that he's caring for his people. Part of what makes yours and my faith unique is that we don't have to reach up to get to God. Jesus, our God, is in the midst of our churches, which means he sees you, he knows you, and he cares for you. The next few parts of this passage are these different descriptions of Jesus. And you'll notice that all of them are kind of this uh, illusionary language, very imaginative language. None of it is really to be considered literal, but all of it has complicated and in-depth meaning, all kind of showing the character and the identity of Christ. He says this, that uh, this man, the son of man who's in the midst of the churches, is clothed with a long robe. Now, immediately, the Jewish mind would have heard long robe, and they would have considered the priest. Now, remember the whole Old Testament. How do you get to God? You sin, so you get a sacrifice. You bring it to the priest. The priest sacrifices it to God, and then you're kind of redeemed in that way. Well, what did Jesus do as the bridge builder, as the bridge between God and humanity? He was the high priest, the mediator, the bridge builder between humanity and God when he was on the cross. So when uh, John is describing him as wearing a long robe, he's actually describing him as the high priest, which means you and I don't have to sacrifice anymore because Jesus has already sacrificed himself as the bridge builder. The golden sash, uh, some languages will say golden girdle or golden belt, was around his chest. Now, if a priest were to wear a belt around their waist, it means that they were going to prepare some sort of work. But if it was around the chest, it meant the work was already done. Remember, what does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Which means Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done. So when John is looking at Jesus, he sees him as the high priest who's already done everything necessary to redeem humanity. He then talks about how his 
hair was white, like white wool, like snow. We know throughout the text that white often describes a sense of purity, but I think there's also a sense where white hair represents a a timelessness and also a wisdom. It's something I'll never get to experience because I don't have hair anymore, but if you see someone in their 80s and they have uh, white hair, you probably say, oh, that person probably has a lot of wisdom. Well, that's kind of the language that John is using here. He's saying that this being has existed from the beginning of time, and he carries all wisdom. He was there at the beginning, he'll be there at the end. He's seen the rise and fall of ancient Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. He's seen the rise and fall of Greece and Rome, the rise and fall of Spain and Britain, the rise and fall of apartheid and Marxism. He's seen all these rises and falls, and he is wiser and grander than all of them. He's Uh, it seems to feel like the ideology of the day is going to win out. And what John is saying is that Jesus, with his white wool hair, is wiser and is going to outlast all the ideologies of the day. Then talks about how his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, this language is really intense, but we know this, that fire penetrates and it purifies I don't know if you're like me, but when I grew up and you got a, a tick somewhere and the tweezers weren't, uh, it was too deep down for the tweezers to get it. You grab a needle, you light the a match and put the needle over the match to burn away the end of the needle so that all the impurities were burned away. So that is what Jesus is doing when he's looking at his church and looking at humanity. He is burning away every impurity. The word maybe some of us know, it's a very churchy word, is the word sanctification. It's the idea of being made more holy and more like Christ. So there's a, we're inviting the Holy Spirit to show up. It's not just that we're filled with good feelings, but that every impurity would be burned away. And which is, can sound harsh and it can sound scary, but it's actually liberating because Jesus is working to free us from the strongholds of this world. He then says his feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, now go back to the book of Daniel. The reader, again, is already uh, in this mindset about the book of Daniel. Now, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a vision where there is a statue that represents all the uh, antique uh, antique kingdoms of the world. Uh, And on those kingdoms are feet uh, made of iron and clay. And Daniel's prophecy about this vision is that those kingdoms will eventually collapse. So when using the language burnished bronze feet, John is talking about a kingdom that will outlast. Bronze is stronger than iron and clay. So this kingdom that rests on these feet will outlast every other kingdom. He then talks about the voice like a voice, a roar of many waters. Have you ever been to a waterfall? Uh, it can be so loud and so powerful that you can't hear the person that you're talking to or you can't hear voices that are next to you. It, it's, it's stronger than every other voice. But also we've been around waters and streams that are peaceful. So this voice, it's, it's got power to it, but it's also got peace to it. Then talks about the right hand and how the right hand holds 
the seven stars. Now, later on, it'll tell us that the stars are angels of the churches. Okay, so this is before we kind of go down a rabbit trail of kind of odd theology. Uh, this is not saying that there's guardian angels over each church, although some people would say that's true. I, I, there's no other biblical text that supports that. Another translation will say messengers. And so if these are the messengers, many theologians and scholars believe that Je, uh, Jesus is talking about pastors, the leaders of the churches. In other words, the leaders of all these churches are in the right hand of Jesus. The right hand represents favor and protection. And before you kind of think, well, man, aren't there faults in the pastors? Yes, there's no pastor that's faultless. There's obviously issues going on. We're going to see in, a, uh, in the next few weeks how there's issues in all these churches. But isn't it also comforting to know that even the church and its leaders are held in the hand of Jesus? And then talks about his mouth and how there's a double-edged sword, sharp double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. So it represents the words of Christ and how the words of Christ are piercing, cutting, and revealing. They're also irresistible and they carry authority. They're not limp. They cut through willful resistance. They divide good and evil. They overcome rebellion and they establish righteousness. Who other words can do that? And then it says his face is shining like the sun. You ever attempted to look up at the sun and you might look for like a second and just burned your eyes? It's too powerful and it's too brilliant. It's, it's too much. But at the same time, his face is not intended to hurt John. In fact, it's, a, it's related to an Old Testament blessing. It's something that we say at Hill City all the time. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. So when John is using this language of his face shining upon him, he's talking about blessing that he's also receiving. So how did John respond when he saw all these images of Jesus? It says he falls to the ground as if he were dead. There is such a sense of reverence and awe and majesty of this being. Now, now don't go too fast through this because remember something here. John is the same one who leans his head against Jesus at the Last Supper. Kind of this sense of intimacy. The same John who had intimacy with Jesus is now laying as if dead before Jesus. This should form how we talk about worship. Because worship is not just intimacy. It's also reverence and awe. Sometimes we get so friendly with Jesus and we call him friend and father. And that is true. I'm not trying to take away from that. That is true. There's an intimacy with Jesus, but there's also an awe and a reverence and a power. It's not intended to scare us, but it's intended for us to see that this being is the central figure in all of humanity. And so he lays down on the ground as if dead. And I love this. It says, his right hand touched me. The same right hand that represents favor and protection now touches John. Jesus touches humanity. Not, it's not left with us reaching up, but Jesus coming down and touching humanity. Now his voice 
was had uh, specific words that he shared. And he says this, he says, fear not. Now it's interesting. Again, Jesus does not give a strategy or three, three-step process to getting through all the stuff they're experiencing. Jesus says this, first thing, fear not. This is the central part of their struggle. Fear had a chokehold on faith in their lives. And Jesus tells them to fear not. I would venture to say that fear is often tied to nearly every struggle you and I experience. Think about this for a moment. What what is jealousy? Well, it's fear that someone else is going to have more than you. What is anger? Isn't it fear that justice may not be served or that fairness is not going to be played out? What about insecurity or pride? Isn't it the fear that you and I are not enough? If you look through all the list of different issues that we struggle with, you can tie fear to almost every single one of them. And for many of us, even the way we're relating to God is through fear. We're reading our Bible and praying not out of a love for God, but out of a fear that he's going to be mad at us if we don't. John says this earlier in 1 John. He says, perfect love casts out all fear. It also says this in, uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, where it says we are no longer slaves to fear. In other words, the journey that Jesus wants to take us on is one from fear to love. He doesn't want us to live a place rooted in fear. He wants to be followers of the way of Jesus rooted in love. His perfect love casts out all fear. Now, maybe you're like me and you're like the practical person in the room. You're like, okay, that's great. I get it theoretically. How do I do that? What does that mean? How does that all play out? Well, Jesus says this, fear not. And then he goes into a description of himself. He says, I'm the first and the last. He says, I'm alive and I'll be alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, look at all that's going on. I was before it all. I'll be there at the end of it all. Even death thought it had a grip on me, but I'm stronger than death and I hold the keys of it and I will be alive forever. Friends, what does it mean for us to fear not? It means for us to look at a picture of Jesus, to see the fullness of Jesus and realize that everything else pales in comparison. Our hope is not in a strategy. Our hope is not in a program. Our hope is not in doing certain things. Our hope is in the person of Jesus. And the way that we see Jesus changes how we see everything. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. The same thing with Jesus for us. We believe in Jesus, not because we necessarily see him right here and right now, but he should be our perspective for everything else. Everything else John is going to see and share with these churches needs to be filtered through this one thought. Jesus is the first and the last. He holds the keys of death. He is alive and he will be alive forever. Friends, that is our source of hope. I want to pray over you right now. Uh, Maybe you are in need of hope. Maybe you're in need of just a fresh sense of the hope that's found in Jesus. 
if that's you, would you, wherever you are, just kind of open your palms just to receive this prayer and this blessing like you're receiving hope from Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the first and the last. We thank you that you are alive and that you're alive forever. We thank you that you hold the keys of death and Hades and nothing that the world would throw in our direction will be able to take hold of us because you ultimately hold it all. Lord, help us to have the hope that is found only in you. Give us a new and fresh perspective of Jesus that by you and through you, we would see the rest of the world. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Church, we love you and we'll see you soon.